Thoughtful Gamer Podcast, episode 17. Here with me today, we have Orion. Hey, what's up? We have Matt. Hi. And from all the way over in Pennsylvania, Wes has joined us. Hello, Internet. You haven't been on since our first episode, right? That is correct. Been a long time coming. Yeah. That is a, that is a shame. It is a shame. Wes uh, used to live with us, but then moved to Pennsylvania, and... Well, you were in Arizona for a while for your job and didn't have your recording device. Although, since our technical difficulties have made that moot anyway, we should have <laughs> just done it before. Yeah, yeah, we probably should have just done it. But that's okay. Uh, yeah, I was in Arizona for, like, 75 days, but now I'm back in Pittsburgh and happy as a clam. But I still haven't played any board games, so it's probably been... Eight months since oh, I played a board game. That's awful. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, we're glad to have you back on. Today, we're going to be talking about impossible themes. And this is something I thought of, I think, while I was like laying in bed. And I'm like, what are things in board gaming specifically that are more, maybe impossible? We'll get into that later, but very, very difficult to do thematically. Because board games do a lot of things very well, but I think there are some inherent limitations with the medium that make certain things more difficult. Uh, before we go into that, I do want to mention, as uh, I mentioned last time, that uh, we've recently started on Patreon to try to get some funds for the Thoughtful Gamer. Uh, so if you do enjoy this podcast, make sure to check out patreon.com slash thethoughtfulgamer. There'll also be a link at the bottom of the video. But let's talk about some impossible things. You know, there were two that I came up with. And then, was it you, Wes, who added the third one? Yeah, that was me. Yeah, and I'm super curious about that one. But let's start with the first one that I thought of that really Wait, can, interests can, can, me. Can, can, you, can you set the stage a little bit? Because I sure. think this, this is really interesting. But what does theme mean and what does impossible mean? Those are my two questions. <laughs> I'm using these words loosely. <laughs> okay. No, no, but, but seriously. But theme in, yeah. in, in terms of the, the idea, right? So you have, in, in board gaming, you have purely abstract games, which even then they're not purely abstract. Like Go is probably the most abstract game that mm -hmm. I can think of that is fairly popular because it's just the stones. But even then, it's about area control. It's about positioning. It has kind of militaristic themes to it. And then you have modern board games, which are about something. So I'm looking at the shelf here. We have Descent, which is about Dungeon Crawl. We have Churchill, which is about the conferences uh, during World War II. Um, that's the theme. And more deeply, I think what I'm talking about in this particular context is kind of emotions or choice ideas, right? Because board games are all about choice. And things that, that really interest me is when the yes. game presents you with a choice that elicits the feelings of the theme. So we talk about Twilight Struggle a lot, or at least I do, because it feels like the Cold War. The yeah. choices that you make and the decisions that you're presented with are the same kind of decisions that, that leaders in the actual Cold War felt also, just you know, on a less severe scale. So that's what I'm talking about when I mean the theme it's the idea okay. of the, the the way the game is an analog of something in real life does that answer your question at all well, that's a good start yeah an impossible yeah. i mean i'm going to present some ideas well i think that the impossible part is interesting as i was thinking about this put um, a question mark after it yeah themes impossible 
Oh, I think the ways that board games are or are not or close to being impossible in certain ways is interesting. So let's jump right into the first one. This is the first one I thought about because, specifically because I've been thinking about how to solve this problem. And that is the first theme I'm calling real market activity. So what I mean when I say this is that there are certainly games, like games are very economic, board games are, especially the Euro games. Sure, yeah. Um, but even any kind of game with choices is inherently economic because economics is about choice. But we have things in terms of simulating the actual market. We have Power Grid, which does supply and demand pretty well, where it has different resources, resources, and as people buy them, the price increases. So that simulates that mechanism pretty well. We have games that do trading, which is obviously a very important part of any kind of economic market, uh, like Catan. But I haven't seen a game yet that captures kind of a very specific dynamic in markets. And that is that there's trading in markets because it's mutually beneficial. And therefore, markets markets are almost a cooperative exercise. Right. And and that's what drives the price and the value of the things being traded what do you mean because i'm benefiting because if we're trading we both benefit um the thing that i have and the thing that you have they gain their like their trading value is dependent on how much value you you give the thing that i want and i give sure yeah on the on the aggregate the value the market value is emergent based sure based on what yes so I think in any game that's going to simulate an actual market, there has to be some way to trade because that's a fundamental action within markets. You have to be able to have exchanges. But the problem is that board games are zero sum in the end. So the idea of a market is that it's not zero sum because we value things differently. If there's a free trade to be made, both sides profit. So it's, it's inherently not zero sum. But a board game, at the end, there's a winner and there are losers. I think you're misconstruing that just a little bit because you're saying a board game is zero-sum, but all of the actions throughout the board game are not necessarily zero-sum. If you're trading resources in Catan, you're both getting resources that you can use for things, and you're both benefiting there. And, you know, trading in, you know, some other games, you're both benefiting. At the end of the game, we have an arbitrary victory points or something because we don't want to continue but everything leads up to that definable but in Catan we see that precisely manipulate the way people trade and interact right because at the beginning of the game everyone's doing a lot of trading usually and we have a lot of free exchange for lack of a better word between resources and that's you know that's good mutually beneficial trading but once someone gets close to winning the game all of a sudden no one trades with them anymore. Like, it works for a while, but because of precisely this thing, it stops working well in Catan. Does that make sense? Sure. But couldn't you just, couldn't you say thematically that's because that player is developing too much of a monopoly on the island and the other, it's like a competition thing then? It's stretching it a little bit. I mean, that's yes, stretching it, it, and that's not how monopolies work, really. I, I, I Yeah. I'm just saying, in the terms of yeah. In that situation of if you were all trying to develop this island, what would cause you to stop wanting to trade with someone? Well, 
presumably they're getting too much influence or something. The only the real world um, corollary there that I can think of would be like everyone trades with Walmart, <laughs> but mm-hmm. there's a there's a kind of a backlash of like because it's so ubiquitous. I want to trade with Mon and Pa shop on the corner instead. Well, I mean, the thing in Catan is that's you know the scale's tiny, so. <laughs> Right, the the scale's tiny, and there's no consequences for not trading. I mean, if you just look at history and say, well, mm-hmm. what happens if Portugal doesn't trade with the Roman Empire? the The answer is that the Roman Empire invades Portugal, and Portugal dies. Like, it's <laughs> there's no equivalent of that in Catan. There's no stakes, and also your people might starve or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right, right. Yeah, but I think it's still subject to. The problem that ultimately it's a zero-sum game. You have many, many non-zero-sum games in Catan, but those get skewed by the fact that someone is the winner. Right. And there's nothing really like that in, in kind of a real real world market. This is weird. I'm almost getting the like calculus problem of like you can approximate a definite end, but like it's like a, a limit. Like like the real world is continuous. Yeah. Right. But, so, like, we can come up with these approximations, but maybe you're right. Maybe it's that definite ending of Catan is just too much of a looming thing that there's no way to have a real market in Catan. I guess that's what you're saying. Right, that's what I'm saying. And that's that's exactly what my second point was, is that there's an end point in a game. I mean... The only, the only close thing in, like, a real-world economy that has an endpoint is if you're, like, building a business specifically to get bought out. Which would be an interesting game concept, I suppose. Because that would be... <laughs> that would be the end. <laughs> that would be a good game. Man, I gotta, I, I would I call that Silicon Valley, the board game. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Venture capitalists. But, but given, you know, most people aren't doing that when they're, like running a business or something. They're right. trying to make a sustainable, you know, business that's going to last in the long term. And even if, like, the end point is, like, your own death or something in the game of the actual okay. economy. The game of life. Right. You, people still make decisions based on, like, inheritance or, like, creating a yeah. trust or something. Can I throw another... Well, let me think. Can I throw another game out? Or do you want to go yeah, through your points? Well, uh, Pit comes to mind. That's not. We've never played Pit. I've played it. It's it's the game where it's like they're just training. cards that are resources. The to win the game, you have to get a card, a hand full of the same card. Okay. And just everyone just has cards. So there's like sets of yeah. eight resources equal, to, and you play. You know, if you have six people, you play with six sets or whatever. Yeah. And you're trading around three. You like say I'm trading one, two, three, or four cards, and they have to be the same thing. But the other person doesn't know what they are. Oh, I think I played this once a long yeah, time ago. Yeah, and so I'm just throwing this out there because... Wait, but you're trying Pit, to collect all of one? Yeah. Pit that's like a backwards. Itself. It's like a backwards. Yeah, you start really is. generalized and become yeah. specialized? But <laughs> Pit fashions itself as Wall Street the game, basically. Okay. Of this trading. And it's just kind of chaos around the table with 3-3-3 and then Orion has 3. And oh, so it's real time. So I play yeah. yeah. You're just yelling at each other and you throw cards back and forth. Um, and sure. You're like, oh, that's not what I needed. And, um, I don't have a big point about Pit, but that's just that's when you when you think of market forces, that that's the game that comes to mind. It's an old game that tries to yeah. 
Yeah, I thought it fashion it. itself that way. I don't mm-hmm. know that it does it particularly well. Well, there's also Chinatown, which we haven't played, but we know about, which is basically you're trying to accumulate the most money and there's property and you can just make whatever trades you want. I think in Chinatown, okay. unlike Catan, there's hidden information. Okay. Or like your victory condition is hidden, so you can't... In Catan, there's a bit. You can hide the victory points from cards. But I think in Chinatown, all of your money is hidden, so you don't really know who's winning, which I suppose is an elegant solution to that problem. If you honestly don't know, you can probably find, or you can probably make a good guess at who's winning. But by making that hidden, I think that helps solve the problem a bit. Right, but that's not how a real market or a real economy works. Like the in in a real market or a real economy, the winner is pretty much always evident. Sure, but in a game sense, by hiding that information, you get rid of the Catan problem, where everyone just stops trading with the leader. So I think well, you it's, actually, hob- it's hobble the leader, right? I mean, that's the name yeah. of the mechanic. Yeah, and so I think it actually would probably create more market-friendly actions and thoughts on the part of players. Okay, here's where I'm confused about what it means to be impossible i mean these are approximations of a free market but anything in a board game is an approximation sure of something so so why why do you think it's impossible well here's what i'm thinking right so in any kind of economic board game it's it's some kind of engine building usually right yeah do things to help your income to be able to do better things to improve your income and so there's always at least from what I can see, there's always a very specific pattern. It's to always it. a means. The the economy is always a well, means. Well, no, there's always a pattern to it, right? You're okay. you start by trying to get you know income. Uh, usually, you're trying to build the engine, and then you try to maximize your victory condition right at the end. And everyone else, if you're the leader, is trying to stop you from doing that. And it's that specific thing where all of a sudden you turn a switch and now you don't care about the long term. You all of a sudden care about the short term and right. everyone stops trading or stops trying to help you. Yeah. It's that that where it all of a sudden just goes completely off the rails thematically for trying to simulate a market. A market. Yeah. Because because it's zero sum and because there's no endpoint. So that's I guess the impossibility in quotation marks I'm presenting. And I think well, let's go down. I have a couple of partial solutions written here of how I think if I was trying to design a game to get past this problem, okay, what would I do? What are you gonna say? Well, well, it's it's a hard problem because okay, you are you're playing a game, right? So usually the market in a game serves a purpose for the game. So one of the problems you get here is in order to have like a fully fleshed out free market as a part of a game. Then, like, then all your win conditions and all of your, like, I, you probably need other mechanics that surround that. But if, if the free market is given that much freedom in the game, then all of a sudden your game is ex- has to expand to fit that. Does that make sense? Do you understand no, what I'm saying? No, because all you, all you need is... Because in any of these all games... All you need is trading, and you have it. Yeah, but in any of these games that we're talking about, like Catan or whatnot, if Catan was infinite, which is a fantasy of mine. (laughs) (laughs) Just playing Catan forever? Mega Catan. Yes. Millions of hexes. (laughs) Um, Then, okay, so if Catan was infinite, 
then and you weren't ending at 11 victory points, then in a sense that market all of a sudden is open-ended. Yeah. But it, yeah, I don't know. It's the That's game. What I'm saying. Okay, the game. The game has to expand in some way. So, when designing a game, unless your point is to simulate the market, the, the market's only serving a, some other purpose. I think I get what you're saying. Maybe I'm saying the same thing that you're saying, coming from a different way. Perhaps. I think the, the the point you're raising of saying a board game can't simulate the market is a little silly because. Like, they're fundamentally different things. And the market, you're, you're saying by definition, the market is unbounded by time, has many parties, and has this mutual trading, and there's no ulterior motives going on other than yeah. profit. Well, So the first barrier let me, let is me that everyone in. has the same end in a board game. Well, let me rein in the parameters a bit. Okay. Simulating a market, okay, that, that's broad. What I'm saying is that it doesn't simulate economic market activity or choices in very specific ways because so in other words there's there's no game that i can think of where i'm honestly planning for the long term the whole time where i care about the long term the whole time okay and there's no game where like the in all of these market games there's always a point where you all of a sudden switch all of your priorities yeah to just getting points or whatever the or money whatever the victory condition is. But couldn't you say that of every board game ever? Well, I mean, every board game is a facsimile. I mean, the the thing that we're questioning is is it a reasonable enough facsimile that you could call it a market or, or you know, like to call it an actual market? Um, or is it a a hobbled or handicapped facsimile that is insufficient? I guess this stems from me really wanting to have a game yeah, you... that doesn't have that thing. Like, that doesn't have that point where right. you all of a sudden switch from, like, acting like you're growing a business or growing an economy, <laughs> and then all of a sudden you become incredibly short-term focused. I mean, Does I, that think, make sense? I, think to, I think to simulate that, it would have to not be a short-term thing. I mean, what you see... What's the one game, broad definition, that simulates a market better than any other game? Wes mm. would be the one to know this. Power Grid if we house no, I, trading. I, I meant broader <laughs> definition of game. Eve Online. Right? Oh, yeah. So, like, online games that are persistent, and the things that you get them are persistent, and... Any, the thing any that, large MMO like that. The wealth you wow, have, both in in-game currency and in-game things items, yeah. persist items, as long as you have it yeah item ships right yeah so so time is the thing that's missing right well let's get to my solutions then because i think we can get close okay. to a board game okay right because okay. that's okay. the whole point of this okay right? good, good there are that's what we there want. are apparent yeah. inherent other than hockey this is a board game, game podcast what's that i said other than hockey this is a board game podcast <laughs> No, because the point the point of this discussion and why I wanted to bring this up because there are apparent inherent limitations with the medium. Okay, yeah, and I yeah. want to see if we can work past it okay. without turning it into uh, you know Eve Online. So here's my idea, okay, <laughs> to get past the definite endpoint problem, you do, you have kind of a a system at the end. Of the game that simulates, you know, quickly without playing, 
kind of future progress. So in other words, you don't have the game end with the winner having the most points or the most money at that point, but you have it be the person who has the most, you know, if you're if the game's about like growing a company, the most stable, you know, steadily growing company, or you have some kind of parameters that way. Mm-hmm. You're giving me a really weird face. I have thoughts. Let's share your thoughts. But okay, but that's what games with economies do anyway. So so immediately when you started saying this, I said, oh, so at the end of the game, you need like some sort of um, financial analysis. You know, like you would go to finance advisor and say, like, I'm thinking of investing in these two companies. Let's look at all the, you know, the ratios and stuff. I don't know how any of that works, right? Okay, sure. You know, like evaluating stocks. I don't sure. Know. If, yeah, you're, yeah. if you're trying to make an investment, you, know. you look at their price to earnings ratio and their you know their yeah. balance sheet you can look at all of that and say is this a sound investment what are the prospects of the future things like that but the things that would go into that analysis are <laughs> the things that you're building up in the game so like at the end of scythe the things you're getting points for are all the components that make up your economy so it really is an analysis of how good your economy would be long term it's not perfect. It's not exactly that. No, but I think games could do better. Scythe actually probably does a decent job at it. Kind of. The problem is, like, in, in a board game universe, mm-hmm. you would look at the stock market and say, okay, what what company has the most money? That's the one. But that's not how it is. It's, no, there's okay, a whole right. bunch of other factors okay, into right. so, a healthy company so or a healthy economy. To improve, improve that, you can do the Scythe thing. You would just apply, like, you get a, a certain bonus victory points for your reoccurring income and or whatever, your assets. And those things would also go into the victory point salad. I think it's that victory point salad, salad thing that includes all the different parts of your economy that, that gets you to where you want to go. Yeah. Or, like, viticulture, if you counted the resids, is more important than just money because the way it is usually i try to build them up and then like the last turn i just trash them all to convert them to victory points yeah right (laughs) but if you if you counted them differently then that could be part of saying we've built up a stable wine empire or enterprise or whatever yeah so i'm imagining a game okay where you're running a company and there's some kind of but it'd be really awesome to have literally a simulated end game where you build up like a stability modifier. Okay. And then like a growth modifier. And then your stability modifier determines, like you roll some dice to see like projected growth into the future. And then if you're more stable, well, you might not have the stability thing, but have like a growth modifier that determines the victory rather than just whoever has the most money at this point. And I think that would do something to give... So, so rather rather than measure the outputs of the engine, measure the internal parameters of the engine. Yes. Yeah. Or I, like I, I, me- measure the health and the longevity of the engine. Right. I think, you're, I think you're right. I think that's what you have to do. I think that, well, Scythe is the game that came to mind, and I'm not really thinking of other ones, but... That do something like that? Or? Yeah. In the pro- well, the problem with Scythe is... It's not an economic theme. That's like, I don't know. Well, that's fine. Don't worry about that. Yeah. Right, because this is this also brings up another problem, or not problem, but issue with board game design is that if you have, 
an engine building game, you want the game to end right when it, you know, right when it's achieved maximum fun. Because yeah. if it okay. rails out of control, the people who haven't built a good engine just have a bad time. But that comes back to the point of the board game is to be a fun activity, and the point of the market is to create wealth, <laughs> right? Yeah, absolutely, Orion. Orion is 200% correct. Are you guys saying that I have a crazy fever dream here that will never be realized? <laughs> I'm just saying the way you're framing it is you're kind of creating these contradictions. Yeah, you're framing it in a weird way. And you definitely picked the worst theme on this list to talk about first. <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah, I think, we, I think we buried the lead a little bit there. But I, I think that, Mark, the, what you're talking about, this is Patrick Bateman's dream board game. You know? No! Like, this what, is... What if, okay, here... Well, sorry, go ahead. go ahead. No, I was just saying that it's it to to have a true market simulation, you're going to have to have people who play that game who truly enjoy accurate market simulation and have lots of fun with accurate market simulation. Yes. And that demographic is small and vicious. I mean, thinking and about maybe it, it doesn't it, play maybe doesn't play board games. I don't think it would be that hard to do. Like you basically need to understand investing and then yeah well there might be a game out there that does this i know there are heavier economic uh, games cash flow cash flow no it's this educational game by do you know the rich dad poor dad books nope okay it's a series of finance books that this guy robert kiyosaki wrote i read them a number of years ago he created this educational board game to try to teach people these principles that he was talking about and one for him one of the biggest points that he makes is an asset is something that puts money in your pocket on a regular basis. Sure. Okay. Some people say an asset like a house has value, but the difference is he's saying an asset is a rental property versus your home. So he would say your house is not an asset. It's a liability because you spend money on it every month while a rental property is an asset because it gives you money every month. Okay. Assuming you've, you know, made a good investment. Sure. So the game is you go around this board and you have opportunities to buy these different investment properties or you know stock or whatever and the goal is to get to a point where you have enough income residual income that you don't have to work your job anymore and so you don't need your your paycheck and then you can graduate to the the fast track around the outside where you everything gets multiplied by 10 or something interesting Hmm. <laughs> right. I think I think educational game is probably this the subgenre that you'll find the best. When I get rich and famous making the Mark Davis business market simulation game. If you want to do that, Mark, write a computer program to grab all the data from the stock market and like you know, tweak it to be your in-game currencies or companies. Yeah. And then people like buy and sell or trade and build in that in that world. And then you have all the data and the world and the continuation and everything and the details that you could do that with. Yeah, but that's not a board game. I want to solve this problem. Wes, well, I think you're right. Game. I think the people that want to play this game are investing in the stock market. <laughs> right, right. They're, they're playing they're playing the game in real life. Possibly. And you can, there's even like stock market simulation apps where you're not actually spending real money. You just, you know, you start with a portfolio of like 10,000 fake dollars and you buy stuff and, you, yeah, buy, yeah. you know. And Orion, you know what's really funny is that those games are usually used to train um, machine learning models for oh. <laughs> rapid trading. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. That, huh. Yeah. Some, that, that's, that's a really interesting thing. I, I researched into that a little bit when I did futures trading years ago. 
What about Millennium Blades? Millennium Blades is interesting. Has a different kind of secondary market. <laughs> that one actually does pretty well. I've only played it once have... and I completely ignored the secondary market. Well, <laughs> it, it doesn't work well with two players, but with more than two players, the market secondary market, you can have mutually beneficial trades. It's very hidden how much any given trade will help your opponent vis-a-vis you know, your success. So while it does have an endpoint, it doesn't but really... The end, came, the end point isn't does, like, the market stops at this point. It's you're playing these three tournaments and yeah. the, the market's kind of going on on the side. And then you finish the last tournament where you're like, well, there's no more reason to keep playing. It's not right. like the market the, there's no There's no change in your strategy necessarily because the end is coming. Because you know so much is hidden about your opponents and your goal is the same each time. It's also not an engine. That's kind of an... Not really an engine building. It's a, okay. Monium Blades is I, actually decent. I I want to talk about different themes because I think on the list of on the list of themes, I think this is slightly below hockey. All right. So, so can I? Yeah. Yeah. Let, let me do the intro to this because it it came to me just today. Um, basically, I, I I've had a fair amount of experience with scale conflict games like Risk, Twilight Struggle, Axis and Allies. Um, and even to a certain degree, you could make uh, an argument that Power Grid and Monopoly, those games are also scaled conflict, where the the concept and the overall theme of the game is significantly bigger than the board itself. Of like In Monopoly, you're, you're trying to control a city. Um, in Power Grid, you're trying to control an electrical company, Axis and Allies, obviously World War II simulation, Twilight Struggle, Cold War, where it's these huge conflicts that should provoke a lot of emotion and should provoke a lot of trepidation. And they're not like they, they, they should be real brain chewers. But in my experience, it's almost impossible to get that kind of tension and excitement out of those board games to like try to eke it out. Even, even if you're seeking that kind of tension, and I guess this is more of an emotionally charged theme, um, is what I'm getting at. That that it doesn't it doesn't throw into you the emotion that would be necessary for something like controlling the outcome of the Cold War. So and you're I, saying, I, so you're saying in terms of it, it can't provide the emotion of like putting lives at risk. Not it can't create the complexity of the situation. That's correct. That's correct. Like the and, and so in that theme of overwhelming large conflict, that it doesn't stimulate in the way that like say Age of Empires or Empire Earth or like an RTS typically on a PC or something like that would stimulate. At, at least for me, I mean, maybe that's not the experience that you guys have had, and that's why I brought this up for discussion. Hmm. So how do you guys feel about those mass conflict games like Axis and Allies and Twilight Struggle? I have a quick thought, and then I'll bow out. This, I think this gets at the medium that you're using is going to shade the way that you interpret an event. And, and so board games are good at kind of counting units and simulating, you know, unit to unit combat. Board uh, games are good at puzzles. They're good at puzzles. Exactly. So when you look at a conflict through the medium of board games, that's how you understand the conflict. So if you're looking to experience conflict, which I think is a good, I, I think that's almost a good definition of theme, is you, you want to experience something. The, I guess the, the board game is going to shade your experience towards whatever that medium is good at. 
Well, I'm, I'm curious, Wes, what you what you feel in, a, in an RTS like Age of Empires that you're not feeling in a strategic board game. When I look at a strategic board game, I I mean, we, we brought this up um, a little bit in the notes about Fog of War, that in most RTSs, you can't see your opponent's units. So having the the information completely out there of like in for instance in power grid i know exactly how much garbage geeseman has and how efficiently he can convert it into power or in axis and allies i know exactly how many troops that russian stronghold has on in moscow when i'm pushing forward is the third reich like it i i have complete information and i make complete decisions and i for some reason when I think of conflicts on that scale, I almost want there to be a degree of uncertainty because I feel like that that more accurately simulates the conflict like the, as it would have actually unfolded. Yeah, with Fog of War, I mean, we like Triumph and Tragedy has a Fog of War me- mechanism where you can see the number of blocks your opponent has in a region, but you can't see what type or how powerful the units are. Mm-hmm. There's actually... And it, there it, it does just because there's three sides and you kind of sit on three different corners of the board and you face your blocks towards you. So, yeah, you know, same thing with, like, Stratego. Like, yeah, same yeah, yeah, concept yeah, there of you see their pieces, but you don't know which ones they are. Yeah, yeah. Wes, on this, you know, I agree here. And the other big thing I'll say is the the, the two biggest things I run into in, in in a board game that doesn't kind of evoke the tension at times is one... Like you mentioned, the fog of war, you tend to have complete information over the whole map uh, yeah. because yeah. just from a logistics point of view, it's too hard to yeah. hide that when you're all standing sitting around a board. Even thinking of memoir, it's hard to feel a whole bunch of tension when it, it's a. I mean, it's a small board, you know, relative to the scale of World War Two. It's hard to really feel tension when you see all of your opponents' units. Just imagine how much more cautious and scared you'd be of doing things if you couldn't see anything on the wood hexes uh, on the forest hexes you know know, what kind of sniper is hidden there right yeah which is where right and that computer games can do that because they you have kind of a master controller that can basically you know infinitely control each pixel (laughs) of the screen to either reveal or not reveal and so on Right. And and when I when I get into a mass conflict game, I want to feel the tension of that mass conflict. If I don't want to feel that tension, I'm going to play a smaller scale game like Agricola or Viticulture or Puerto Rico or Carcassonne or Catan, where it's that's really interesting. Right. That it's these micro, like really gratifying, full information gives you warm fuzzies kind of games. But if it's this huge weighty conflict, I want to feel the weight of that conflict, not turn it into a chess game. What do you think of uh, Twilight Imperium as as this sort of thing? Because you see a lot in Twilight Imperium, but it's not as unit pushing as Memoir. Yeah, I I, I think that Twilight Imperium can be intense. Um, I think it has the right degree of intensity. It's interesting that you bring up that game because I hadn't I hadn't thought about it vis a vis this question, but. I don't know. I it, it still is a jovial game, and I, I guess it comes back to the issue of fun, right? Of is it is it fun to look at a board game and be stressed and sad? Yeah, <laughs> which I mean, coming from the guy who loves Agricola, <laughs> <laughs> right, um, right. Yeah, all the examples I thought of, kind of like of games where 
you get the tension of not knowing. I guess are all smaller scale games. So you have hidden movement games like Fury of Dracula, where you have information hidden, uh, but that's not a conf- it's not a large scale conflict game. I know, I know, in the world of war games, that fog of war is always a a big deal of trying to figure out how to simulate that. And you know, the block war games have their thing, like Triumph and Tragedy or Sekigahara, where you can see the number but not the type. Well, what like what information are board games good at hiding? Well, like stuff like things that you can hold in your hand, your hand of cards, or. Or, you know, the Stratego thing of, like, the back isn't shown. Or amount of resources in your pile or something like that. No, Stratego Stratego is an excellent example. I I should have just looked across from me at my copy of Stratego. Like, that, to me, that's an excellent way of handling Fog of War. And I've had games of Stratego that are actually very tension-filled and I've enjoyed. Yeah. Twilight Struggle, of course, is the kind of weird, unique example here because there's a ton of... There's a ton of tension in, you know, in the card play because you can't see your opponent's hand of cards. But at the same time, it kind of makes a point about the Cold War in that you have these huge, massive conflicts that you just play out like another card. Yeah, the Korean War is just one of 100 cards. Yeah. And you're like, well, I think if I trigger the Korean War now, that is strategically in my benefit. Right, and right. You don't think about like, well, yeah, I'm going to send 10,000 soldiers over there and some number of them are going to die or something. Yeah, I don't know if... I think I at don't some know point if you there kind of have to roleplay the, the emotion, emotional investment of these different events. Because even like, you can play memoir and you send your battalion of soldiers in and if you just look at them as plastic pieces, you're like, oh darn, I lost a victory point. But, I mean, at, at some point... It's a plastic piece or a wood piece. It's not a person, and you're not going to have that emotional investment unless you intentionally roleplay it that way. Right, and so that means the games that do it best are almost necessarily smaller scale because, like, you know, your Descent character, when they go down, that's impactful. Or I assume in miniatures games, you know... You know, if I'm playing playing, uh, Armada and my giant Death Star goes down, that... Is impactful because of the size of it. spent ten hours painting it the weekend before. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> or if you have like individual attributes or, <laughs> and a name to a character or something, that sure. would do it. But board games can't do that on the the large scale of oh, I really feel the impact of you know those thousand people that just died. Mm-hmm. There's also uh, I haven't played it, but apparently the board game version of this war of mine is supposed to be really dark and harrowing on. You know, again, a kind of a small scale level. I'd be super interested to play it. Yeah, I was thinking about games that could go either way on this spectrum. And even though I haven't played it in probably years at this point, diplomacy seems like a really interesting right. like way of looking at this because you could, if you have a diplomacy group, you can go into it saying, okay, this is going to be a goofy game of diplomacy and we're just going to screw around and have fun. Or you could sit down and be like, okay, we're going to take this super seriously and treachery is going to be met with treachery and blood is going to be met with blood. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, it's all rhetorical because there's no actual combat in diplomacy, but it's, you know, you can, you can decide as a group to go into it really cutthroat or you can be really banal about it. Yeah, and I was going to say... The second thing that in these games that makes them less tension-filled is they tend to be turn-based. 
And so you can sit there for as long as you want, staring at your hand of cards or at your blocks mm. of units or at your Axis and Allies minis or whatever and think about what you want to do. Whereas diplomacy, you can sit there and think about, but then you have to secretly all simultaneously submit your bids and resolve things. Yeah. And you don't see, oh, you moved there, I'm going to move here, and then you go here, and I'm going to go here. Because that is another, like, immersion-breaking mechanic that we use for the purpose of making the board game work as a as a game, but that's a, it, it breaks away from the, you know, the thing it's trying to model. Right. Um, and another thing I just thought of is part of it could be, well, let me put it this way. A solution to Wes's problem about, you know, large-scale conflict games could be just the way you, or the knowledge you have about that situation, because... You know, we're into war games. We haven't gotten much into Hex Encounter war games or the deeply historical Hex Encounter war games. But a lot of the people who are into those games are also huge students of history. Yeah. So they're playing it very precisely to simulate the conflict, not necessarily to create kind of a balanced strategic situation. Yeah, so and I think, when they, I think they're, when a they're particular still... battalion goes down... They, you know, they may know some of the names of the people in that battalion because they studied this yeah. particular fight. And they're, they're still playing the game to play the game, but the experience is informed by all of that ancillary knowledge. Right, yeah. And as a... It helps them role-play it all. This is something I've run into of when I play my, like, history grand strategy games, like Europa, which is set in history from, you know... 1440 to 1820 you actually see the world of europe and the you know the different religious wars happen and all these different events and i've studied history enough to know some of these things and i've you know i've read books about some of them or i've read stories about this king who did something or you know and so there's a, a built-in kind of meaning and backdrop to all of the things you're doing even if you conquer the entire world as an island in the Pacific by 1700 or something, right, right. you know, silly like that, because you can kind of break the game mechanics. But still, when you're playing it, you get that investment in what's happening. Whereas I've struggled to see something similar when I've played Stellaris, which is a great 4X game in space, but it's just manufactured. You just, you know, you make up a space civilization or an empire that you're playing, and it doesn't have that backdrop of real history to give it additional meaning and i've heard some interviews from the developer of that saying that was something they specifically struggled with because in europa when you play france you know something about france and you know like oh yeah they they were rich or their kings were corrupt or their you know whatever and they had the conflict with the german states or the you know the spanish empires or emperors things like that whereas when you're playing this space alien race you're like well this is a great but it doesn't have that same depth of i don't know experience or backdrop or knowledge or history or whatever to make it more rich and to make a more rich experience yeah. so i suppose from a game designer standpoint the solution has got to be along the lines of really incorporating either the history or the mythos into whatever fictional world into the game you know giving names to things giving backgrounds to things because even like twilight imperium does that really well absolutely like when you absolutely. when you choose an alien race in twilight imperium because you can flip over the card and read the whole like encyclopedia entry yeah. about it it makes it makes that combat feel more weighty 
It does. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, it's, it's, it's a, in some ways it's playing off a kind of like psychological weakness of humans is that if something has a name, we care about it a lot more. Yeah. And so yeah. you have to play off of that as a designer or as a developer of a game. Yeah, even the way that if you each of those races feelings. in Twilight Imperium are unique and the character of the race from just the you know the image that you get all the way down to how the long backstory kind of explains their uniqueness, which is then matched in their mechanics. Yeah. Well, it has to be matched in the mechanics, it has too, to or be. there has to be attributes but, or something. But it, And I think T.I. does a good job of that. The one that comes to mind is, like, the, what, like, the cyborg ones? The L1. The L1. L1 X, yeah. The yeah. net or whatever. Yeah. I've played them and just felt like I'm going to go into this and just be cooled and calculating. And, I mean, that's kind of silly because, in a sense, we're all cool calculating because we're playing a board game. But, like, my experience was enhanced by that. Yeah. So. Well, and then compared to something like Quantum, where each player has a different name, but there's no no distinction oh, yeah. between them. You don't care. It's red, blue, and green. That's yeah, all I yeah. can remember. Yeah. I just so always I think... pick the Orions because it's my name, even though I don't like the color yellow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I guess it's more than giving it a name. You have to give it some kind of identity. And yeah, so if you can yeah. give it an identity on a large scale, in a large scale game, I think yeah. you get close yeah. Yeah, um, you know, what are the things in Memoir that do that? Well, well, in the campaign, there are, you assign certain units as special units, and they do have a, a name in some, in some yeah, of the yeah. missions. And you're that, playing a historical scenario, a and it tells you the story yeah. beforehand, yeah. and then it's like, go play it out and see what happens. Yeah. And the thing, we've talked about this before, but a lot of these historical games are meant as simulations of that war or that period in history, not necessarily creating a balanced Euro economic yeah. game, which is one of the reasons I find them so fascinating. In addition to the strategic depth and, you know, whatever that is also in, say, uh, you know, Viticulture or Termiscare or something. Here's a thing, calling back to a podcast quite a while ago, one of the things that War of the Ring has going for it better than Rebellion is that it's on a map we're familiar with. Oh, yeah. Right? We have a. It's on, I have a. You like, have a, I love Star Wars and Lord of the Rings fairly equally. I think I have a much bigger like emotional connection to like Osgiliath because I know yeah, what happened in Osgiliath and I can see it right on you know right up there yeah. as like the last defense before Minas Tirith. Whereas in Rebellion, like the spatial connection between the planets doesn't matter yeah. in Star Wars at all. And therefore, th that sense of it's weak, a bit weaker, even though... Yeah, let me... I'm going to play devil's, devil's advocate here, and I'm not sure exactly where I stand. But in this case, the theme can work against the game as well. And I think that that tension is important here. You know, how well do the mechanics actually um, play into or against the theme? So in War of the Rings... Um, I do care about all these people. Even those people, even the dwarves up in the corner. The poor dwarves who never had any action. That if... Yeah, but in like a generic themed game, I literally would not care about those dwarves. Yeah. But because it's Lord of the Rings, I, I find myself caring about them and I want to get them involved. You know, <laughs> they're people too, or whatever you know, Sam says. 
Sorry, Sam says that. No, that's right. Okay, we're just gonna have to run that. They're people. They're part of this world. Dwarves are people too. That's what Sam said. I was close. That's the most generic quotation. They're they're part of this world too, and so I want to get them involved in the the war. Plus, the minis are the best. But as far as the you know raw mechanics of the game go, you don't need to get them involved in some cases. All I'm trying to say is, I think that. In that case, the theme and the mechanics don't necessarily line up. Even though the theme makes you feel something, that doesn't mean that it lines up with the mechanics. Yeah, I think it's a minor point that the dwarves are just kind of out on the side. <laughs> sure. I think I think the important point is that... I think we care more about what happens to those locations and people in War of the Ring than we yes, do. Yes, but that's not necessarily well, a good thing. Because if it, if it plays against the mechanics, then you have... In, in inconsistency. Right. It one, needs one to thing. play... The, the theme has to play into the mechanics. The mechanics have to play into the theme. Well, and one thing Rebellion does well, though, is uh, with capturing leaders, because you're attached to those specific characters. And right. Thus, yeah. And, and thus, the Empire capturing one of your leaders, or like capturing Luke or Leia or someone... Feels really bad, but also it works really well in that it ties into the mechanisms because it's also very bad for you on a mechanical level. Right. Thinking about horror in board games, um, board games can't really do what I would call terror. So I, I this came from a Reddit post like a couple weeks ago that there there's this distinction, especially in Victorian literature, between terror and horror. And I think in modern day that we can branch that out into terror, horror, and thriller. Where the Victorians, they they define horror as a genre as being based in the feeling of disgust from seeing something terrible. Um, so like the, the, the sick feeling in your gut. And you can get that, I think, from board games. But what you really can't get... And what I think that the, you know, our impossible theme, quote unquote, impossible, quote unquote, theme um, (laughs) that we're talking about is actually terror, which is this fear, abject, unbridled fear that relies on the unknown, that it preys on our insecurities and puts us into fight or flight mode and cold sweats and all that. Like you can't I don't know if you can get terror from a board game the way you could get it from a movie or a video game or even a book or an RPG or an RPG even. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, what you're just calling terror is exactly what I was thinking of. Cause obviously you can make a board game that looks disgusting or is about something disgusting. I don't know if anyone has the bloody end, the, the bloody <laughs> end. Yeah. I, I suppose. Although I don't think it's, it's not really trying to elicit a feeling of no. disgust. No, but I think you could, like, you can with art, therefore you can with a board game, right? Since you could just put disgusting art or horrific art in the game. Yeah. Although it, it would necessarily be weakened by the fact that you're then playing strategically with it. Yeah. Right. Again, like, all of the mechanics would work against it, likely. Yeah. Um, right. But I think the question of terror is is the fun one. And the two problems I outlined were first that board games are open. You can look at all the components. Yeah. For the most part. Fog of War, a problem all over again. Yeah. yeah. Sense. But even then, all the information's there. You can look at all the cards in a game. 
You can you can see everything. You unpack the game. You maybe yeah. assembled part of it. Honestly, I think that there's a physiological and psychological side to this too, because your your group is approaching this board game, and your 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 brain is ramping up to okay. I'm going to spend the next hour, the next two hours being cerebral. I'm going to spend the next two hours solving problems, or, right. like that's that's the gear that you're getting yourself into, and so it's almost like you're suppressing that like reptilian hind brain that says you know eat or run you know what i mean right yeah right, right. Um, yeah that that's that's absolutely great wes i mean in contrast when you go to see a movie you you put yourself into that mood you're like i'm going to put myself into this movie and experience what the person's experience which makes you hyper ready to yeah be a suspension of disbelief yeah Right. So it's almost like your own brain is working against you where you're getting into this computational mode instead of a reactionary mode. But I think that, that a, a sort of subgenre here that I didn't really define um, a second ago of thriller is where board games excel. Like they actually not only does it work, but with the right game, it works incredibly well. Well, so a thriller is defined as simulating stress. Um, simulating tension, suspension, okay. stress, and, re- and and release. And the board games that do that are like Battlestar Galactica and Resistance. But it's it's actually like in this moment of like you you're in Resistance or a similar game, and you're like, oh oh man, I've been found out. You know, this is this is the end of me as a member of the Resistance, or the, you know, this is the end of me as a spy, um, or Secret Hitler. Even when that assassination card gets played, so that the, those games have yeah. those. Really great moments of of stress and suspension, but it's not fear, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's suspense, right? It's it's the Hitchcock thing, where you know, surprise is the bomb exploding. Suspense, uh, suspense is when you know there's a bomb there and there are people there. Uh, you know, there uh, there's a bomb under the table and it doesn't explode. Yeah, right. And board games are really good at that. You know, like you say with the resistance, when like yeah, the suspense you, of finding out if you're if what you thought every was real push your luck mechanic, push your luck mechanics, anything where there's a significant like dice roll or like pandemic when you're drawing cards and you know, mm-hmm. and yeah. you know one more epidemic could kill you. Yeah, yeah, anything like that, board games do really well. I immediately, I mean, thinking of horror, it's in board games, it's, it's impossible not to think of the Arkham games. So why do we think that those games? do or don't do the the theme well. At least the ones I've played, well Elder Tour is the only one I really remember. It's a problem it's a it's a problem again with the mechanical thinking of playing a board game and the things that would create horror and that's the problem of randomness. And so or randomness or or just the unknown where the unknown in the resistance is great because it's very impactful that there's not that much and all of it's about finding about that unknown. In Eldritch Horror, I find that it's just like, oh, another thing happened to me. Right, a bad thing's going to happen every... And it's just a matter of which flavor that bad thing's going to happen. So at some point, you get diminishing returns. You have diminishing returns on randomness. Okay. The more you have it, because then it just becomes another bit of randomness rather than something, ooh, really terrifying and scary. Yeah, or suspenseful. So I think back to it was, I mean, it was college when I played Arkham Horror. 
Um, Wes, you might have played it more than I did. Um, no, I, I've actually never played Arkham Horror. Oh, really? Okay. Well, Believe it or not, as, as close of friends as I am with Bubba and Stephanie, <laughs> I have never played Arkham Horror. I mean, my, my first thought is you could skin that game in whatever theme you want, and I don't know it would, that it would change the experience. Like, you could do a, a Marvel-themed Arkham Horror and not change one actual gameplay yeah, mechanic. Yeah, where there's a large villain. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know that it would feel any different. And if I don't feel different playing H.G. Lovecraft versus playing Marvel... I don't think that it's doing the theme very effectively. Yeah. Well, let's try to think right. of what would be what would be a possible solution to create like how would we create kind of a board game that has terror? I don't know if there is a solution, honestly. Like this is one where I really don't think that there is unless yeah, you did because... something like unless you did something unethical. Cuz the like, other thing is that you have to have something big at stake. What That's are you, true. what are you going to put at stake? Like, I think the only thing that you could do is that, like, you're out of the game, which would be, which is unsatisfying, which is unsatisfying. Right. You know, I if, was thinking... if it's just like you lose, you know, 30% of your income or something, nah, that's not going to terrify right. anybody. Right. I was thinking almost like real world implications of like you have to go sit in an empty closet listening to horror soundtracks for oh, five minutes. Have or you, like have either have you played like Quelf? Oh, that game's horrible. There's a game that there's a game that Quelf, <laughs> inflicts terror. What that's am I true. gonna have to do? That's true, but that's a party game. Do we really want to talk it's about a party the game? Terror of embarrassment. Yeah, shame. yeah. Right. but that's got to be the closest thing to actual terror. Well, I think the closest thing is, is an RPG. And I think I agree with Mark creates, there. I think because it precisely because it creates stakes because yeah. you become attached to the character. Yeah. Like I still remember back in college, Wes, when you nearly killed me when we were in that Star Wars RPG and there was like a talking statue. Do you remember that session? Um... It was was this in the Sith temple that had all the traps in it? Yes. Okay. And you I don't had... remember the, I don't I don't remember what the statue did to you though. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you got to a point where you thought that we were all too complacent and too powerful. <laughs> and so you solicited advice from someone on how to DM it and they said, you know, make them scared. And so you sent us to this temple and I got like a statue or something and I put it somewhere and yeah. then you had someone like you had it speak to me and say, do you want to die? Oh, it was a yes or no question. Oh, right. And if you asked, if you answered incorrectly, you were going to die. And I, was, and I asked you later, was I actually, were you actually going to kill my character if I did the wrong thing? And you said <laughs> yes. But the point was, it felt like in that moment that you were, like I totally believed that you were going to do it. And I love that after the fact, you did say, yeah, I was going to do it. Um, and I love that I actually survived by just shoving the statue off the pedestal. Yeah. <laughs> and refusing to answer the question. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I think true. you have to have something yeah. like that because the DM has this information that other people don't. And, you know, obviously there has to be that trust between the players and the DM that the DM is acting, quote, unquote, fairly or, you know, in their interests for the story. Yeah. Um, but I think you have to have that kind of situation to yeah. create 
terror. Yeah. You know the you know the the most I felt terror in that campaign because I don't think my character was ever in huge. You're a harm. character. Yeah. I I. Yeah, I went rogued it and stayed out of the way. Yeah, you were always hiding in the shadows. When I arranged for the the murder of the the party member that I couldn't stand. Oh yeah, we killed the like, party member. Like that was terrifying to go through with because like if we botched that, I was probably going to be the one that's I because I'm I'm squishy, you know. Well, that was terrifying on multiple levels because we didn't know if we we're going to be able to kill that character. In- yeah. He was obviously way more powerful than all of us, but also the time, yeah. how would Royster actually, pers- like yeah. as a person, yeah. respond to right. it? Yeah, right. You, you guys were also confronting a character who, like two sessions prior, had pulled a miniature, like a, a normal sized space station out of orbit and then committed and into a planet a race of lizard people. <laughs> yeah, it's true. But okay, but my point in bringing that up is that in role playing. If you you create the world and then there are so many opportunities for human emotion, both GM created and character created. Yeah, I'm really interested in Geisman bringing up Quelf. That 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 really stirred something in me because I loved how that game pushed boundaries. And yeah, it I I was at the heel of a lot of uncomfortable experiences in that game too, but I still think that it's a great party game. And yeah, I think that. It's not just embarrassment, but I think that people do feel genuine fear playing that game. Like I was, which is great. I was an awkward college kid. I think the first time I played it, like, was probably playing with some girl that I thought was somewhat attractive, and just like I knew that there were cards that would make me hold the person's hand next to me for the rest of the game. Wow! Seriously, like I think I think that that. Yeah, I think that that's that's terror, right? Yeah, because it forces interaction. But you can easily imagine a more horrifying version of that game that makes you do really like really uncomfortable things. Yeah. I would never want to play it. Right, and this is not. I'm not recommending Quelf. I don't. I never particularly oh, enjoy. I I recommend Quelf wholeheartedly. Yeah, that's a stark see, I... difference between us. Yeah, and I, I think that when I originally was thinking about this topic, I I went the super cynical and dark route, and I was thinking like unethical in in like actually trying to produce pain and torment, right? Right. Um, almost almost like a saw board game where you right. you know you draw the wrong card and you have to like cut yourself <laughs> like that's uh, that's the, to me that's but then again who, again who would play that game i'm sure yeah. that there's a market out there. there there are people in salem who drink blood on a regular basis but i mean they like it's it, there's a market for that but it's a weird idea yeah and like who wants to design that and be like responsible for that yeah. i think of course i think in the board game sphere like it has to be a party game right Here's my yeah. other thought. What about a legacy game? And Or a legacy game could approximate the RPG thing. The legacy game thing could get closest. And like in Pandemic Legacy, like we kind of feared like a character dying. Well, it was but really th- impactful. There's, there's that one mission where one of the characters... We can spoil Pandemic Legacy Season 1 at this point. Warning, if you haven't played Season 1 of Pandemic Legacy. Well, uh, you, we ended up tearing up a character. Yeah, yeah. 
pretty it's far through possible. the game. Yeah. And I remember feeling it, for sure. Wasn't it my character? I, I think it was. Yeah, it didn't, yeah. It, it didn't impact me that much. Maybe that's just me. But I think, I think there could be a legacy game that does that kind of thing better. And I think it goes back to what we were talking about before with having, like, you know, in Pandemic Legacy, you do name your character and they do have traits. But you can, I think because you can swap in and out of them as much as you want and pass them around between missions, you don't, at least I didn't come, become particularly attached to my character as I would, like, a Descent character. Yeah, I had a weird connection to the team. In, in Legacy. Like, especially as we, like, picked our team and we found some good combinations, I felt yeah. really attached to the team that would be going on, yeah. on missions. So, the character that we ripped up was one half of a great pair. Yeah. And so, you know, well, first of all, you're ripping a, a, co- a component in half, which is very effective, I think, at creating horror. <laughs> But second, I know, like, okay, well, this other character that was really useful probably isn't going to be useful anymore. Probably not going to play with them again. You know, I had some kind of suspension of belief, belief um, attachment to the characters. Mm-hmm. So it was an impactful moment. Yeah. I think it works best in RPGs. I think the problem because becomes if you're trying to create a board game that elicits, like, terror, you, you end up just making an RPG. <laughs> Which yeah. is fine. Right. The RPGs do it really yeah, well. Yeah, totally. Even that um, that indie game that we played at PAX East, it it just like said this is an R you know, this is a board game, but it's an RPG. Yeah. And that's how it dealt with the apocalyptic experience in a way that it knew that it couldn't do as a board game. Yeah, yeah. Well let's move on Matt to your thing. Your your addition to the list here. Yeah. So I think this this comes from horror fairly well. I thought of uh, surrealism and I mean specifically the image that I have is very much the Dolly surrealism mm-hmm. um, I think one temptation in thinking about board games is to just say that you know theme is just artwork you know slapped on and stuff I hate and, that yeah right yeah and, and we're trying to get away from that I think doing a good job but you can definitely see like taking the amazing artwork of Dolly and just slapping it onto a, a board game, and it would look really cool. You know, like the crazy elephants with the, the you know, giraffe legs or, yeah, yeah. or whatever, and, you know, things that, you know, the board could have these crazy, like, double images where it's one thing, but it's also something else. I think there's possibility for just, like, the artwork itself. But where I think that this... I think surrealism would break down as a board game theme is every mechanic would necessarily work against the theme because in surre- you know in a surrealist world things don't make sense. Well what what does board gaming do well, well? I, I, I disagree about that. I don't know that much about surrealism. Isn't it more about tapping into the unconscious? Um, so it's yeah. it's a combination of things. Basically, it's it's not just tapping into the un- unconscious. It's also about subver- subversion of reality, like conscious right. conscious subversion yeah, of saying but- that this reality is incorrect, and so I am going to impose my unconscious mind onto these real norms to create the surreal. Yeah. Okay. Well, how do you? How, what mechanics, board game mechanics, could possibly capture that? I think. Let me throw something out here. I think I might have it. Telestrations. It's like, the telephone game, but you're writing, you're drawing pictures. Pictionary? 
No, no, no. It's the one where no. you have someone writes out like a phrase or an, something, and someone draws a picture of it, and then they pass it to the next person who, like, or oh, who telephone tra- pictionary. Who try who writes out what it is, yeah. and then someone else tries to draw a picture of that description. Okay. Okay. In a very high, a very high level, level way, yeah. it's kind of like surrealism because you're you're, you're okay. a, you start with an established reality and then destroy it. That's certainly better than anything I came up with. Right. Well, I, I I don't know why, but the tagline or whatever the the benediction of whose line is anyway popped into my head of you know the points don't matter. Right. To, to, but to, to me, to me, that's what it. Yeah, that's that's to me that's what a surrealist so, board game would be would be just playing for fun, and it's actually subverting the norms of what a board game is intentionally for oh. for humor and reflection. It has to be that Wes. I think it has to be the board game isn't really a board game, and well, I, I, when you said that, what what came to my mind was Descent because I you know I love playing Descent and I. I don't like the game very much, but we had a, a magnificent time, and I would play it with you guys anytime. B, or uh, BWH, uh, Betrayal at House on the Hill. Um, you know these games that we don't think are very good games, but are fun. Don't listen to him, listeners. I love BWH with a burning passion. I love. And I think it's a great I game. Here, I don't know if this is surrealist, but it is postmodern in that it, it, it's extremely postmodern, and there are obviously connections there. The game is called 1,000 Blank White Cards. Oh, yeah. that's That was another game that like Stephanie played in college. It's literally just 1,000 Blank White Cards and you just make a game. Well, it's Quelf, except that you, the players... No, I'm pretty sure things. it's just a stack of cards. Yes, but you I'm don't telling have to you, make right. something I'm like explaining Quelf. the game to you. Right. That's, that's one game that it could turn into, and it probably turns into that game more often than it turns into other games. Oh, sure, yeah. In the same way that a transformer usually turns into a car and not an airplane, you know, like <laughs> right. yes, I I'm not convinced at all by by these examples because I think it's proving the point that. But isn't that the ultimate subversion of a board game? Right, but surrealism isn't just subversion; it's trying to create some kind of epiphany through subversion. Okay, and yeah, but so in a, what I'm imagining is like shoots and ladders in an M.C. Escher painting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, and that's what I imagine too, Wes. But the 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 thing is, the point is that one wouldn't be in a fun board game, except as a novelty. And and this gets back to what I was saying earlier of like the mechanics and the theme have to play into each other. I think every mechanic that we think of as a board game mechanic would play against this idea of things aren't what they seem. You know, you can't track anything. You know, where do you have sure. some kind of token to track? You know, if you make it an adventure game with a surreal theme, then all of you, you know, your tracking of your health and your tracking of the items you've collected or whatnot is all going to play against because that's tangible. It's not surreal. Yeah. yeah. Well, just the, just making choices is probably against it. Making choices that have, yeah. That have uh, consequences. Consequences that you can, you know. Yeah, I know there's a game out there that's like a super niche game that some guy made um, about a psychedelic drug trip, and apparently it's very well done. That might get kind of close, but I don't know. I, I don't know yeah. much more than that. Yeah, yeah, I think you've you've nailed a uh, 
An impossible theme. Ooh. At least for doing the impossible game. every day. <laughs> All right. Well, and your last one was romance, right? Yeah, romance was the other one that I came up with. I really just came up with it because I think it's interesting to see how games try and fail to capture a theme. So we all love Love Letter. It's a great short little sit around the table. You know, you can you can joke and have a conversation while you're playing it. I think Love Letter falls into this weird category of games that you can play in an airport terminal. Yeah. <laughs> or on an airplane. Yeah. <laughs> what? You don't want to drop your tokens of affection onto the airplane floor. So I think the interesting thing is that Love Letter... It's kind of fun. You can be coy and play into the story of trying to get your letter to the princess. But at the end of uh, end of the, the day, you're collecting tokens. And like the idea of quantifying romance in this pile of tokens. Square cubes. That's square. the way to my art. <laughs> it's just cubes. <laughs> just cubes. Geometric cubes all the way down. Just <laughs> geometric, geometric shapes in general or just cubes. And cubes are great, you know, you have, sharp. you have a nice variety, like in Terra Mystica, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I don't know, what do you guys think? Love Letter's fun, but I think it, it doesn't actually capture romance. <laughs> well, Love Letter's one of those games where you could, and they have, right. any theme you want on it. Yep, yep. Have yeah. you seen uh, how many Love totally. Letters are out there? There's like Batman, yeah. there's Marvel, Marvel, there's, I don't even, there's, well, there's a million Love Letters Oh, there. um. Well, it's meant to be lighthearted, right? And yes. I, I think that maybe maybe it's the fatalist in me, but I, I think that romance isn't fully lighthearted. Like there's a weight and a substance to it that you totally. can't communicate. Like in Love Letter kind of does disservice to the theme of romance, but we all accept it because it does disservice to the theme in a way that we can all relate to because we grew up with the princess and the Prince Charming story. How can you capture like self-sacrifice? In a board game, that doesn't really make any I, sense. I, I mean, you can. Yeah, I don't think but you usually can. Not in a romantic context, like in a in a you know any kind of cooperative game. Oh, you cooperative. Can have yeah, that's a good yeah, point. Yeah. That's a good point. But it's usually not a romantic setting. So yeah, that's interesting. And it would well, and then it would be really awkward to create a, a game where you were actually like trying to pair up. Like, I guess that would be what you would have to do to. Oh my gosh, I would love that game. <laughs> I can would I love like, that game so much. Can you imagine like a, Isn't that playing at in the bottle list? A table with seven people, Wes? Oh. Is that number of people? <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> no. That's that's a nightmare scenario right there. I was I was I wish we had video right now because I, I want to see what my face just looked like because in one moment I was looking wistfully up at the ceiling thinking about this beautiful game of pairing up strangers and trying to fall in love with each other over the course of 30 minutes. And then you said that and I was like, oh, God, no. <laughs> you could conceive of a game where the goal is to not necessarily pair up, but like game, you know, create a, a sense of like emotional in, intimacy or something like that. And I, and I know there's a game that tries to do this called And Then We Held Hands. Okay. Which oh, I almost backed it on Kickstarter, but I the gist of it is that it's a two-player co-op game, and I think it's kind of a spatial, spatial puzzle of trying, like you have two pawns and they're trying to reach a center point or something. And the whole game, I think, is built around like working out compromises 
and, you know, working together, but giving up, you know, someone gives up something so the other person can gain something. And so it, trying to, it tries to simulate a relationship or romance that way. And it's another game I'd like to play. I don't know if I'd want to own it, but I'd like to play it just to see how well it does something like that. And so I think the realm of co-op games is where there's the most potential here. But I think it'd be incredibly difficult to do. I don't know how you do it. I can't think of a co-op game, you know, get, broadening it a little bit from romance, just like the sense of kinsmanship. I can't think of a game that I've really felt that, you know, in terms of like self-sacrifice, like you watch Lord of the Rings and like what, what Sam would do for Frodo, you know, <laughs> you know, I've and never... It's romance, it's a different kind. Sure, sure. Yeah, we we just yeah. We're, we've been going back to the Lord of the Rings well so frequently. <laughs> yeah, well, it's good. That, that's all. So but specifically, Sam. <laughs> yes, Mister um, Frodo. I can't think of a, a co-op game that I've like felt that sense of self-sacrifice yeah. for the team. Again, yeah. it's almost like we're trying to create an RPG here. Yeah, totally. You, yeah, you again. It's something that works out really well in RPGs. Yeah, I think you could do it in board games, though. You have to have some kind of stakes to it because because the, the well, problem is like in Descent, you could have where someone like throws themselves in something in front of the monster, but they're they're just gonna like regenerate, by, you know, for the next yeah. mission. But how do you prevent the stakes from becoming too real? Yeah, that's the problem. Hmm. It's like you're obviously going between two extremes and trying to find a good middle point, but. In some cases, there isn't a middle point to be found. Well, that's how do you answer sense. that question for role playing, Wes? Well, to, to me, it's a completely different medium because you have, I mean, if you if your character quote unquote falls in love with another player character, you guys have months of sessions to hash that out and what that means and like how that impacts your friendship with that person in real life if it's you know if it's a gender bending or sexuality bending situation like this this is getting into all sorts of adult themes that we don't necessarily need to get into but you have this time and this real world relationship to work that out because your character in the game is an expression of your personality on a deep and fundamental level. You, at least usually that's how it is. Whereas with a board game, you need to, you, you just usually just detach from it unless it's like a legacy game. You just detach from it as soon as you're done with it. And if I'm going to play a board game, I'm one of those people that falls in love with strangers on a disconcertingly regular basis. And if I'm going to sit down and play a board game and not actually fall in love, but feel romance towards someone else to have that just cut at the end of the game and then to go about life like that. To me, that sounds painful. Yeah. And I, I, I don't want that to happen. I would rather have the turmoil of a continuing emotional story that would happen with an RPG. But I mean, you, you I, I think that you could emulate romance in a board game, but without the the temporally lengthening of it across multiple sessions yeah it, you can't you you don't have a way to fully hash it out in 2 hours yeah you know we haven't tackled the question at all of you know should you tackle themes in a board game this might be the one that i would most quickly come down on the side of of no like there are good mediums for exploring romance and even just kinsmanship but you know written there are books there are you know for goodness sakes go watch 
Peter Jackson's Return of the King. <laughs> um, oh my god. You know, well, I mean, just those mediums do it better than I think board games ever will. Well, there's a there's a or, difference or between role play for goodness sakes. Well, there's a difference between also if we're thinking of a game tackling the theme of romance of a game that's trying to get you to feel romantic toward another player in the game and a game that is trying to get you to make the kind of choices that one has in a romantic relationship. Right, right. Does, um, does that affect how you respond to the should you question? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, but if it but if it's a game that forces you to make those choices, then how do you keep it from becoming rote and dissolving into that's mechanics? Another, that's, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's a, the that's the hard question right, for right. sure. Yeah. You you could put a lot of effort into making it work only to realize that you, you just, just broke romance down to A, B, or C. <laughs> yeah. Well, which or is which is what some becomes... some people make a living out of doing that. Yeah. Like that's what pickup artists are. Yeah. That's true, yeah. If my board game is being compared to pickup artists, then I'm doing something wrong. Yeah, no, that's the point, though. That's the yeah, point. Yeah, right, right. There's certain things... Huh. Maybe that'll be a podcast for another time, is themes that should not be... They <laughs> should never be used. Should, should not be <laughs> done. Yeah, for that the, reason. These are the themes, the dark themes sealed in the vault. <laughs> the unspeakable themes. Yes. <laughs> themes, themes that shall not be named. <laughs> oh gosh. Oh man. Wow, that's a really interesting. This one. You went down a this, dark path there. Yeah. This. No. This particular the romance one has, has got me thinking, but I don't have any clear thoughts. So. Oh, we we can return to it another time. Yeah, maybe we'll talk about it later. Any other comments you guys maybe have? On in, this? Maybe in February we'll have a romance episode. <laughs> a Valentine's Day episode. <laughs> Any other thoughts on anything we've talked about here? Nope. I don't think so. I mean, it's 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 exciting to see a game that is tackling a new theme. But, you know, and, and I've had that experience a lot in the last couple of years. And, and that's exciting. Uh, yeah. But also, it can, it can so, uh, frequently, it comes down to feeling like, oh, we've reskinned the same sort of thing. Yeah, and that's part of what drew me to this topic is because I love games that have interesting themes or not not by not interesting unique things that haven't necessarily been done before things yeah. that you wouldn't think would be the theme of a board game but when you really think about it sometimes it's such a huge design challenge to go away from kind of the established themes because of just the way board games are yeah but I think it's a worthy challenge to think about and, you know, yeah, and from it, a design standpoint to try to overcome these problems. Because then that's, I feel like that's how you get to like new mechanisms and new genres of games is you really try to work through these puzzles and these problems that come about because of the limitation of board games. Like it's been said a lot of times by many people that, you know, art is enhanced when you have limitations. Mm -hmm. There's the filmmaking saying that there's the movie you go out you set out to make it, and then there's the movie you end up making while you're trying to make that movie. And that's especially true when you have, you know, a lot of limitations, and it's less true when you have all the money in the world and all the, you know, computers that can do everything. So I think the limitations of a board game create some really interesting thought processes and challenges that could make for some interesting games. Or maybe, or, and probably also a lot of busts or games that just turn into RPGs. Yeah, as we've as we found, 
Yeah, that's our podcast for today. I hope you enjoyed it. Make sure to check out the website at thethoughtfulgamer.com. Hit me up on Twitter and Facebook, and don't forget to rate and review this podcast on iTunes. And again, if you do enjoy this podcast, and if you want to watch a live stream of us recording it, which we are doing for the first time today at this very moment, go to the Patreon page. Every Patreon supporter will get access to the live stream so you can see uh, all the stuff that I edit out, all the horrible jokes, and talking about Samwise Gamgee too much. I think that's a really awesome reward, and we have all kinds of other rewards there as well. Again, that's patreon.com slash thethoughtfulgamer. We'll talk to you again soon. Goodbye. Samwise Gamgee is his own reward. <laughs> so you're saying that you're going to edit out Samwise parts? I don't know. Who knows? <laughs>